Have you ever felt a visceral attraction to a politician? There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. I am your voice. Ask yourself if they're really telling the truth. This is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting. This is Subliminally Correct, a bi-weekly podcast where we examine all the ways politicians and newsmakers are using psychological tactics to influence you every single day. And now, join myself, Taylor Sherman, certified hypnosis instructor and executive coach, along with my co-host, Alex Dobranek, political consultant and certified consulting hypnotist, on this episode of Subliminally Correct. And welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. Now, today we're going to be talking about a paper from the Analyst Institute, And this paper is all about how to use social pressure to get volunteers and staff members to call their friends and family to influence their vote. Now, this is really interesting because this is a tactic that has been around for a really long time, but it's something that campaigns have used to a certain extent, but not entirely. And this really lays out in detail how campaigns should go about using social pressure and face-to-face influence to uh, influence friends and families of staff and volunteers. Now, before we dive into the paper itself, I want to talk a little bit about the Analyst Institute. The Analyst Institute is uh, an organization that studies elections and electoral tactics. Uh, Specifically, they're on the progressive side, and they were really a thought leader in the 2012 election Uh, President Obama borrowed a lot of tactics from them. And in fact, at least one member of the Analyst Institute was embedded on President Obama's campaign and really led a lot of the experiments that uh, the Obama campaign used in 2012 that helped lead him to re-election. Ever since, they've become sort of a staple of political campaigns. And a lot of their tactics and experiments are being used every single day with greater and greater sophistication. And so it's it's really interesting to see what's coming out on the forefront of political campaigning. And so I think we should really just dive into what the paper says. Definitely. So what this is talking about is what's called a friends and family program. And this is about reminding your friends and family to actually go and and vote. And effectively, what happens is that when people reach out in this face to face basis with people, you know, which is what we've been talking about quite a lot on the podcast is when you show up on someone's door and have that conversation with them, when you are able to have a face to face and it's no longer just a Twitter war. Uh, with people, you know, talking over each other or blocking and ignoring each other, then you're actually able to get through to them on that person to person level. And of course, who is it better to get on a person to person level with than those that you already have a pre existing relationship with who already might be thinking the same as you, but for whatever reason might need a little bit of a reminder to go out and vote or to uh, be able to. Uh, participate in a campaign. And so what this is about really is not leaving any votes on the table, 
especially in terms of friends or family members that others might know. So, you know, right now you might know someone in your friends or family that simply doesn't vote, or maybe you haven't brought up the subject with them, or maybe they um, have a different political leaning than you do. And because of that, you don't really want to talk about it because those heated uh, Thanksgiving dinner discussions, you know, oftentimes uh, can can turn into <laughs> other things. And really what we're going to be talking about here is, OK, how is it that you can make an ask to people? How is it that you can reach out to them to connect with them, to be able to broach that subject and to actually get them to take action? So you might want to think about people like who would you send a holiday card to or, you know, what are the issues that might impact people who are in your base or, or around you? These are all things that are listed in this paper. And one of the things they're saying here is that this is not just about texting a bunch of people or sending a mass text. It's not even about emailing. You know, if possible, it's over the phone or face to face. Now, when we really consider that, of course, that's pretty significant because what is the difference between texting and having a having a phone conversation or face to face conversation? Well, it's the rich richness of the media, right? There's much more of a um, ability to take in all of the information that a person has to offer when you're talking with them on the phone and hearing all of their vocal qualities and being able to get into rapport with them. Versus, for example, sending a text message and being able to misinterpret um, what the person uh, what the person says. Now, one of the things that really struck me, you know, when I was reading about this, and as Alex and I were, you know, talking about doing an episode on this, is I thought about okay, if a campaign were to ask me and to say, okay, uh, go and talk to everyone you know. And invite them to go and do this. Well, I might have a little bit of trepidation about that. And I know a lot of people who would have trepidation about that. And the question is really, you know, how is it that you can actually get people um, within a campaign and using social pressure and using influence to be able to actually influence the people within the campaign to take action and do these almost unnatural types of things like talking to people that you haven't talked to in a while, reaching out and picking up the phone and not knowing how that person is going to react to the fact that you haven't talked to them in six months, you know, for example, um, and also being able to bridge that gap of, hey, by the way, you know, are you planning to vote? You know, uh, how can we how can we talk about this? And um, what Alex is going to talk about here is how is it exactly that we make that ask to people and some of the the tactics that are used on campaigns, both to um, influence and create connection, rapport with those that are going through that voting process. In other words, the ultimate people you want to vote, but also to be able to create that sense of unity and togetherness as a team within those on the campaign staff. So what do, what does the paper say on this, Alex? So what I love about this right here is that they borrow a lot of tactics from persuasion, um, the school of persuasion. I know, uh, Taylor, when you maybe hear some of this language here, you might think back to some of the some NLP or some great, uh, great motivators. Um, we've got sort of general advice it lays out, you know, sort of stepping into that zone by just being enthusiastic and leading by example. So making sure that you're the one 
who's out there, you know, calling your friends and family alongside them and mentioning the people that you've done before and the, 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 the people that have done this at other staging locations. These sorts of things help the individual who's hearing them get into an emotional space where they're not afraid, where they're, you know, seeing your enthusiasm for it. They're hearing about experiences that were positive that were happening in other places with other people who are just like themselves. And then that allows them to imagine themselves doing the exact same thing, taking the same action and having that same positive outcome with that enthusiastic emotional space. And so that's what's really important right here is that you need to walk them through the experience imaginatively before they can step into that zone and do something that might be a little bit awkward like uh like taylor was mentioning calling that person that you haven't talked to in a while and one of the things about that is that it is potentially unsettling for a lot of people and that in and of itself i would argue is what makes it so powerful Getting that call from, you know, your aunt or getting a call from, you know, your high school crush, I don't know, calling you up and telling you uh, about the importance of voting and how they're counting on you to vote is something that just doesn't happen very often. And a startling experience like that is something that's going to stick with you and you're going to remember and you're definitely not going to hang up on them like you would maybe a random stranger calling you. And uh, so the awkwardness makes it all that more powerful. Now, what does it actually say that you should say when you're calling somebody? What we see is a situation where the staffer is maybe beginning a phone bank or a canvas launch. And they use this sort of language to motivate the volunteers to take this action. This race is too important for us to leave the votes of our friends and family on the table. As you're walking today... Think of all the people that might need a reminder to vote on Tuesday. When you return, we are going to spend some time reminding our friends and our family to vote. Or, studies show that turnout effects from friend-to-friend contact are more than twice as large as traditional voter contact methods. We don't want to leave votes on the table by not reminding friends and families to vote. As you're walking today, think about friends and family who might need a reminder to vote on Tuesday. When you get back, we're going to spend some more time reminding our friends and family to vote. Now, what's going on here? I think first we can see that they're planting the seed. So they're saying, while you are out walking today, think of all those people that might need a reminder to vote on Tuesday. So they've got that little bug. And I guarantee you nobody walking out of that office to go canvas is not going to be thinking about all of their friends and all their family. They've had that bug planted and now it's going to be with them, especially while they're out there talking to people on the doors. They're doing the very same action just to strangers. This is going to be they're going to be thinking about this the entire time. And they're probably going to be thinking, oh, I wish I was talking to friendlier people who want to see me. Um, and actually want to talk to me. So this is a good experience for them to sort of get that that thought ruminating in their head. And then it says to 
prepare them for when they come back. So it says, when you get back, we are going to spend some more time reminding our friends and family to vote. So now they know that that initial discussion at the beginning of their canvas was something that they're going to be held accountable to upon their return, and they had better be prepared for. So there's a little bit of that social pressure of not wanting to disappoint, of actually producing that list of people out on their walk, because when they get back, they're going to be facing some new social pressure in another form of a debrief. And, and it's a social pressure that they have bought into, okay? It's, a, it's an idea that they've already bought into by virtue of being on the campaign, by virtue of taking action to support their belief and to support their decision. And now they're buying into it again by allowing the campaign and working with the campaign to be able to move it one step forward. And so, you know, when we've been talking about this idea about how it's uncomfortable for a person to pick up the phone to tell their friends and family to be able to vote. Like that's an uncomfortable and unnatural thing for a lot of people. But if you think about it, that that is a, as a type of social pressure, you know, and social pressure usually is going to say, hey, don't do stuff like that. But what the campaign is saying is, hey, we're going to make this social pressure, but now in the opposite direction. In other words, we're going to put on social pressure, but in this way, we're going to make the uncomfortableness of disappointing the process that you are already involved in to be greater than the uncomfortableness of picking up the phone and calling people you haven't talked to for a while or that you might be a little bit uncomfortable talking to. And so it's really just brilliant in how this is phrased and how it's framed. Okay. When you're out walking, this is what's going to happen. When you return, this is what's going to happen. Well, one of the things that psychology studies show us is that expectation works, right? So being able to create an expectation within a person's mind, this is what is going to happen, that works. That's an influence tactic. That's a persuasion tactic that, you know, it just spans the gamut in all of the different ways in which that in which that is used. And, and notice how it doesn't give him a choice, too. It says, when you get back, we are going to spend some time reminding our friends and family to vote. It's built right in. This is part of the process. Like, this is part of what you are, what you, you know, what you're doing here. You know, you're helping the campaign. And so now we're going to guide you. We're going to guide you through this. So I just find it really interesting how there's all of the general public that you want to vote. And then there are all of the ways that the influencers are being influenced. Um, all of the ways in which the people who are actually going out and doing that stuff are actually going out and assisting with the campaign are being brought into the fold effectively to be able to do their jobs better. Right. And so I want to move on to the returning uh, conversation. So this is what's written out and sort of modeled here. So as the canvassers are returning to the office, the staffer should say something along the lines of, Studies have shown that we leave votes on the table when we don't remind friends and family to vote. Would you take 10 to 15 minutes to contact family and friends who might need a reminder to vote on Tuesday? Now, this is interesting. So in a past life, I used to sell cars. And <laughs> I, one thing I learned in sales and along the line in, in, in campaigns is that you never put the reason someone should do something after the ask. And what you see right here is that all of the asks in both the launch and the return scripts here 
all of the asks come after the rationale for the ask. So what it's doing here is that if you were to if you were to ask your friends um, if they want to go to a restaurant, you would say, hey, do you want to go to this restaurant? I know it's your favorite and you really, really like it. And I was just thinking we could go. What that does there is it builds in the expectation that you're sort of expecting them to say no. And by sort of putting it afterward, it sounds like a rationale for why they should do mm. that thing. But if you put the rationale at the beginning, it's like a car salesman. Oh, this leather is really nice. Doesn't it feel great? Oh, it rides so much sm smoother than your current car. How about we head on into the office and see what we can work out? Right there, you're, you're, you're building in all of the reasons why they should do something before you actually say what it is that you want them to do. Brilliant. That's brilliant. Yeah, it's, it's when you say it in that way, it more closely matches a person's natural decision-making process. It matches the way in which they're actually thinking. And, you know, in effect, then they when they go and think about taking action, they already have the reason prepped up. They're already ready to go in and do that. And so I think part of what makes these type of scripts and uh, things that you're going to be saying then to the canvassers effective is that the canvassers have already built in a motivation for what they're actually doing. Now, I'm curious, you know, to what degree canvassers are actually taught and, you know, phone bank people are actually taught to do exactly what you just said, Alex. You know, do, do, do we get down to this level of sophistication where they're actually able to use influence and um, persuasion skills, you know, much like that, these almost advanced kind of linguistic skills? Oh, most definitely. As somebody who has worked on several campaigns and have given these trainings in this detail, hours and hours and hours of training on how to do just this, how to phrase things, how to, you know, put the, the rationale before the actual question. All of these things we're trained on and train each other on. And I want to sort of get to the history behind all of this, right? Is that a lot of the stuff had been around for the longest time. It's been around forever since sales existed. But the real campaign that brought it to an entirely other level was the Obama campaign in 2012. They really took a lot of uh, language patterns and not only brought it to the door to voters, but brought it in-house and used those same tactics that they used to people on the doors and on the phones with their own staff and with their own volunteers. And it really sort of just gets to the way of like how revolutionary the Obama campaign actually was in sort of all of this thought and how really partnering with organizations like the Analyst Institute um, really got that to an entirely other level. Now, I want to bring up something else that, that this sort of reminded me of, too, is one of the, one of the big things that uh, the Obama campaign borrowed from the Analyst Institute was the study they did with, uh, with Notre Dame on the uh, 2008 Pennsylvania primary. 
And what they did is they tried out four different scripts. So they had people make phone calls to uh, voters and they split them up into four groups. One group got no call at all. One group got a call with a standard uh, get out the vote script, which was basically, you know, hey, uh, the election's on Tuesday. This is just a reminder. The third group got the standard GOTV call, the, hey, the election's on Tuesday, but then added, can we count on your vote? Sort of that social pressure language built in. And then the fourth group, they got that standard GOTV script. Then they got that, can we count on your vote? But then they got even more social pressure. When will you vote? How will you get there? Will you, where will you be beforehand? Where are you going to be making after? Making a plan. How far is it? Exactly. That making a plan language that is so useful and so powerful in that not only does it allow them to walk in their heads you know, where they're going to be, you know, what that day is going to look like, you know, all the things that are going to be happening. But then it also has that expectation, too, of the the person is standing at your door and sort of you're not going to say, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. You're having a human interaction with somebody else face to face or in this case, in this experiment over the phone. And so the results of that were remarkable. Basically, the standard GOTV script, the, you know, hey, the election's on Tuesday, had next to no effect. The can we count on your vote had about, made them about 2% more likely to vote. But the plan making increased that person's likelihood of voting by 4.1%. And so that's just, that, that's a lot. Yeah. That's a in if you think about it in just in just mathematical terms, if you can influence an election by four percent, that's a lot. That's that's a winning margin. Now, of course, you're not going to talk to everybody. You're not going to be able to call everybody. But uh, those are big numbers. And the same thing is that that conversation, that very same conversation on the doors, can increase a a, a voter's likelihood to vote by seven percent. Now, a normal conversation at the door can be, you know, one to six percent, but it you're reaching up to seven percent on the doors, and that's just that's just all of these social pressure and uh, and conversational techniques are taught, are implemented by campaigns, and they work. Yeah, I think one of the big drivers here is the influence tactic of commitment and consistency which is that human beings like to remain consistent and they like to remain committed to what they have said or what they especially what they've done what they've actually done or what they've taken some action you know to do so when you ask a person one time okay are you going to vote on Tuesday they say yes okay now that one time in isolation might be enough to push some people a little bit further toward voting but then again, they've only said it one time. They can say they can rationalize it to themselves. Well, I was just saying that in order to get that person off of my back or whatever. Okay. Then you start asking more in detailed in detailed language. Where are you going to be? And then they say it, and that's another commitment because now they've just committed to that that that's where they're going to be. How are you going to get there? 
oh, now here's another commitment and so on. And they keep drilling in that commitment again and again and again and again. And when you start to get that strong of a commitment from a person, they find it hard to then back out of it because not only have they organized and planned out in their mind, hey, this is what is going to happen. This is what is this, uh, how this is going to work. But they've also said it to someone else, which, you know, when we speak out loud, when we're communicating to someone else, there's different things that happen in our brain than if we're just trying to do it all internally or doing it based on an ad that we're receiving versus actually hearing ourselves say it versus actually making that commitment. You know, that really reminds me of another great campaign tactic. And this one's called the commit card. Now, this is another big thing that was really, you know, launched uh, sort of an analyst institute and, and other organizations had experimented with previously, but really launched into full force with Obama. And what the commit card is, is that the canvasser goes to somebody's door and they've got a, a paper, a cardstock paper uh, that has all of the information about Election Day, but then it's got this little tear off. And what the person does, they go to the door and they ask the person, great, so you're going to vote? Here, why don't you fill out this, uh, this commit card? And what they do is they, they put their name and address on that card, and then they check a box that says, I commit to vote on whatever Tuesday it is. And then you take that card, the canvasser walks away, and a couple months go by, and then it's about a week or two away from election day, and suddenly that card has a stamp on it, and it ends up in that person's mailbox in their own handwriting with their signature on it saying, I commit to vote on Tuesday whatever for this person. And that right there was sort of a breakthrough in, in political tactics because, you know, we talked about how effective, you know, phone calls are. They can be, you know, one to two percent effective if they're just, you know, if they're, you know, not done quite as well as, you know, social pressure. They can go up to four percent if they're done really, really well. But commit cards have been shown to have an effect of two to five percent. And that's huge because it's so easy to do. And what's even better about that is that on college campuses, it can reach up to 10%. So we're seeing, and and the best way to do this, of course, is to actually have on a college campus the person uh, hand-delivering the card back to the student at their dorm and on election day or a couple days before to add in that extra bump of social pressure. Look, you signed this card. You said you're going to vote for this candidate. Let's go. Brilliant. Yeah. It it reminds me uh, like in card magic that if you're doing a card trick with someone, you have them, you carry around a little miniature Sharpie and, you know, a little colored miniature Sharpie and you have them sign their name on the card you know, on, on whichever Mm -hmm. card you're, you're working with. And then you proceed to do your card magic. And then whatever it is that you do with that card, when you then once again, show them their name with their signature on the card, it makes the trick that much more powerful because they realize, Hey, there's no fake cards here. This is not generic. This is personalized. This is unique and special to you. And there's something that people really like about that personalized approach. 
Um, one other way that I noticed that um, you can do the personalization is being able to, when you're talking with a person, to talk about how voting one way or another would particularly impact their lives specifically. So in other words, if they go this way, how specifically is your life going to be impacted? And, you know, I'm curious, Alex, from your experience, how long do those conversations typically last that you have with people? This is this is great because there's a this is sort of on the forefront of um, sort of political tactics study right now. Now, normally you would try to have as long as conversation as you can as you can within reason to, you know, get out the 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 ideas that you're trying to elucidate. So when are you going to vote? What time you're going to vote? And then if you're trying to persuade the person, what issue is important to you? Here's how this relates to the candidate. Uh, here's how I relate to the, all of this. And I'm relating to you right now. You want to sort of build that triangle. And so that can last, you know, maybe five minutes tops. And what makes this experimental is that recently there, there has actually been some experiments in what's called deep canvassing which is where you actually try to like invite yourself into the person's home for a lengthy like hour long discussion with the person about the issues. And there's sort of a, a I would say there's a mixed rece- reception to that sort of thing, but I find it really fascinating the study of, of, of like the interpersonal connection there. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I would be curious to see what would have the greater number the greatest influence would it be sitting there and having one long conversation or would it be repeated small conversations with that person over a longer length of time because it's kind of like if someone wants to learn to meditate okay and they sit down and they meditate for two hours well that's going to be less effective than if they sat down for that same two hours you know over a 12-day period and meditated for 10 minutes each time you know why because they're grooving in you know that that part of the behavior over time which do you think would be more more effective right right I, you know i would i sort of lean on the idea of repetitiveness because i think that these things can compound and i think that if you are able to make that connection and make that reminder in different ways that that's more effective so that's touching that person too. on by the phone is one way. And then a week later they see somebody at their door. That's another thing. Then they get that commit card in the mail. Great. They've also got a text message. Great. They have a door hanger when they're out at work. Great. And then they have some mail in their, in their uh, mailbox and their, in their email, like all of these things, you know, sure they don't stack. So you're not going to get 6% from a door plus 5% from phones and plus 5% from mm-hmm. a, no, but you're going to get some sort of a, a compounding effect. And, and I'd have to dig it up, but I'm, I guarantee you that there are tons of uh, studies on all that. Yeah, I think the, the richness of the medium and the communication is so important. And so if you can reach someone a variety of ways, you're able to kind of build this thing that happens over time. Um, it's, you know, when we think about time distortion and how that happens, how we consider how things have, have happened well, in one way, it's, you know, it's space time, right? So it's what has happened that then implies that there's been a lot of time that's passed. 
you know, you might have been spending an entire day, you know, just traveling from place to place to place. And even though it's only been a day, it might feel like three days because you've spent so much of that time just shifting locations or, you know, shifting mediums, you know, things like that. Yeah. And I want to say that sort of add on to this is that the Obama campaign played around with exactly what you're talking about. And the way that they did that is by building in a narrative into the types of conversations that they had. So as the year went on, the scripts actually changed. And so you might have started off with a standard get out the vote script like, hey, don't forget the election's coming up. And then a couple of months later, now the script switches to can we count on your vote? Here, let's collect this commit card. And then that switches to great, when are you going to vote? How are you going to get there? Where will you be beforehand? And so it's sort of they built in that evolving conversation into it. And I think that a well-run campaign needs to do something like that to build in a conversation because if there is voter fatigue, like there there is such a thing as calling the same people with the exact same robot script, they're going to get tired of it. They're going to tune it out. But if now you're asking them different questions and now you're trying to get them to engage differently with you in a way that sort of builds and compounds upon each other with each script changing, that's what's effective. Wow. Wow. It's it's just fascinating to what level this this all gets broken down. Right. And it's effectively just helping a person to do something that is actually in their best interest. But we know that. A lot of people don't vote, you know, so, you know, voters that are um, elderly, age 65 and older, you know, actually turn out at a rate that's almost 30 percent higher than 18 to 24 year olds. And even though there's been all of this, you know, mobilization to be able to bring out youth voters, we know that youth oftentimes don't vote, you know, as much as they even say that they, you know, would, or even that they would find idealistic for whatever, you know, reason. So I just wanted to quote an article that, that I found online here. It said, you know, we find a strong correlation between the number of young people who said they were contacted in a given campaign and youth turnout, but the level of outreach is inconsistent. Okay. Why do you think that is? Why is the level of outreach inconsistent? I mean, is this just a funding issue? Is it a organization issue between different campaigns competing with each other? What do you think is going on there, Alex? I mean, I think it really depends on what type of an election it is. Because the big thing is that in general elections, there's a lot of money. There's a lot of time that can be spent you know, reaching out to harder groups. Um, it, there's a lot more money. You can embed somebody in a college campus for months and months and months where their only job is to talk to students. And the other aspect of it, too, is that, you know, we're talking about the mismatch between, you know, what they say they're being reached out to and what actually is happening is that people just lie. People say that they've been contacted way more times than they actually were. People think that they were, you know, talked to or, or, or had those phone calls or had those texts, um, and they report that that it happened more than it actually did, and that might inflate people's ideas of how much you know 
attention was being paid specifically to them. But on the other hand, you know, it's a it's it's kind of good. It means that those things that that did touch them had an impact and were actually meaningful to that person. I think that's important. Yeah, it's really interesting when we consider the different types of races that are happening, the different elections that are happening. So, you know, here where I live, we just had a um, primaries, but also a lot of local local races were included in the in the primaries. And it was really interesting because trying to find information on a variety of these local candidates was just profoundly difficult. I mean, I, you know, I, of course, wanted to be informed. I wanted to know who it is that I'm actually voting for. But I would say even though I spent a good, you know, some hours really researching this, I still was not able to find all of the information I'd like to to make an informed decision on each and every race. And, you know, keep in mind, I was voting by mail-in ballot, you know, so I had time to sit there and think about, okay, who do I want to vote for? Oh, let me color in this circle. Who do I want to vote for here? Let me color in this circle. I think that if someone just showed up, they wouldn't have the same experience. They wouldn't have the same, you know, ability to to do that. And so is this, you know, why is it that the the emphasis on going out to vote um, is so strong only on the big election, the general elections, you know, what, why not on the primaries? Like what, what are the things that happen there? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's all money, right? Is that the local elections can only fundraise so much. The primaries can only get so much attention and and only so much money is out there. People just don't care, especially, you know, the funding class, um, the, the donor class, uh, tends to engage much more on all of the big issues. And that's, I mean, it's really a shame, but at the same time, it, 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 it turns our smaller elections, our local races into a name recognition game where it's about who has the biggest poster as you're driving by it. And you're seeing that poster every single day. And the candidates that really make an impact at the local level are the candidates who are willing to go out and door knock themselves because there's something a lot more powerful about the, that, you know, local mayor mayoral candidate uh, for a small town actually showing up at somebody's door or to be the, the county commissioner for your county. The, the woman shows up at your door to talk to you in person and then you can ask all those questions to them. And even if you, you know, had no idea who they were before, you're going to be touched by that moment. And there is also a little bit of social pressure in there too. You've you've now got somebody that you had a pleasant conversation with, you were ambivalent about before, now you kind of like them, and they're expecting you to vote for them because you made that commitment potentially to them face-to-face. It's absolutely fascinating, and it's like being able to notice and see this all playing out. I think the local races are just such an interesting way to see this playing out and kind of where some of these strategies work and where they just don't work. You know, uh, before we actually had the, you know, the election day that was happening in terms of for the primaries, um, up until that point, you know, I would say for about two weeks before I started receiving a bunch of direct mail. 
And I was just amazed at the various qualities of the direct mail. And it wasn't even, you know, the amount that they spent on printing it. Like you would think, oh, well, if they pay for a nicer flyer <laughs> or they, you know, they get it in, you know, super gloss or, you know, something like this, that that it would turn out yeah. better. But it was amazing in, in just the way it was. And I remember one one person actually wrote out and it was just like it had been written in Microsoft Word. You know, like this person just put their name at the top and they'd written this out this nice letter. And then at the bottom, they put their name, they signed their name in the bottom, and then they put P.S. If you have any questions about this, call me. Here's my cell phone number. <laughs> I'm going, <laughs> you know, OK, that's pretty personal. You know, that's that's exactly. pretty, uh, you know, there's a great amount of outreach there. And when it really came down to it, I think one of my uh, my votes actually was for that person. So, right. you know, that's just an example right. of how I was influenced by that. <laughs> I could go on and on about mail. There's it's it's funny because mail is just so, so darn cheap and it, you know, does move the bar ever so slightly um especially among old people who are going to be voting um young people don't are more transient don't receive their mail don't read their mail um it's i could go off on a huge tangent about this uh nevada especially las vegas is notorious for mail just being totally ineffective and because nobody seems to answer their mail in nevada likely because of the transient population there but um one piece of mail, though, that I find particularly interesting is uh, this really. Th- so there was a study um, that a lot of campaigns were afraid of. And what they did in an experiment is that before Election Day, they sent out mailers to a bunch of voters. And on the mailers, it had that person's voting history printed on that mailer. It's all public record. And it told them, you voted this election, you voted this election, you missed this one. Are you going to make this one? And then it also put the voting records of their neighbors on there as (laughs) well. I love it. So they could see see how their neighbors voted too. And... And then at the bottom, it said, uh, we'll be, uh, it said something like, uh, the voting records are our public record and we'll be checking in with you after the election to see how your experience was. Right. <laughs> Implying and that they're going to vote. That, right. Right. Exactly. Or, or scaring them that now they're going to have some kind of an awkward conversation with somebody if they don't uh-huh. vote. Like they're going to have to tell somebody that, you know, I neglected my civic duty right. and didn't go vote. And they're going to have to like rationalize that to somebody. And so uh, the results of that study terrified campaigns. A, because what happened is that there was a massive public outroar. Like, the, everybody in the area got really upset about it. It got on the news and people were, were fuming that their that their voting records were being published and mailed to people. But you know what happened? The voting increased. <laughs> the voting rate went through oh, yeah. the roof. Through the roof for all of those people. And that's why campaigns are afraid of it, because if they see that if voters see that this campaign is sending this out, there's going to be a certain measure of backlash in the press 
though it does have a tangible, measurable effect on the vote. And I was part of a campaign that actually said to hell with it. And in, in Connecticut, uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and on Dan Malloy's campaign, uh, we actually sent out this very exact thing. Um, and ironically, they put the uh, the field director, uh, that person's name, on the mailer. And uh, her inbox was flooded for months. It was wow. on the, it was on every news station for weeks and weeks and weeks. And but you know what? These people voted, and and that's what's important. Yeah, what they will respond to and what there's outrage about is often different from what they'll actually what they'll actually do. Um, it, it's what this all reminds me, especially now that we're talking about direct mail and and this is you know direct response. Marketing, direct response, advertising, being able to actually go back to those old school tactics of how do you influence people across mediums? And, you know, in the direct response world, it's all about, hey, how do you how do you phrase, you know, the question, you know, Um, you know, in the ad goes, they laughed when I sat down at the piano. Mm -hmm. But when I started to play. Dot, dot, dot. And that's really a famous direct mail, direct response uh, marketing advertisement. And you could do the same thing with campaigns. You know, um, they laughed when I said that I was running for office. But then when I started to canvas. <laughs> and so you know, what happens is that when we when we think about that ability to do it across scale, Right. I mean, it's like th- these are two different things. Mm-hmm. Right. One is how do you send out something and notice, OK, do I get a response of one point one percent when I only got one percent beforehand? OK. You know, right. but then when you go on to the personal level, when you're face to face with someone, then it becomes, well, how do I influence this person specifically? And they're, they're right. vastly, you know, different skills that. I would almost say even different people within the campaign should probably be in charge of. Do you find that that's true? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, that's really what is emerging in campaigns these days is exactly like, how do we do this at scale? Like, it's one thing to print out a persuasive mailer. It's one thing to uh, put on this really persuasive and emotional ad on television. And then it's an entirely other thing to get hundreds and thousands of volunteers and staffers and and people from all walks of life from different generations and sit them down and teach them how to do this face to face with another person with all of their biases and all of their preconditions like going into all of this like you've got to create some sort of a uniform front of tactics so that you're getting sort of the base standard level of quality and not basically wasting a whole lot of money. And that's sort of where campaigns are at and where they're going. And a good campaign wins if they're able to train this massive group of people in how to do voter contact the right ways. Yeah. And so much of it is What's the playbook? What is the strategy? How do you get systems in place so that people can follow this system and you kind of take the error prone nature of some volunteers or the, um, you know, very 
persuasive nature, uh, nature of others, and you start to normalize it and you can create kind of this sense of, okay, everyone's getting the same results where, you know, you might have, might have someone who, well, maybe they're just not that naturally able to do sales or to do persuasion. And, you know, when you're wanting someone to vote for someone, it's basically sales, you know, it's selling an idea, it's selling a candidate Mm -hmm. and sales is a skill. And it's a process-based skill, right? It's not about getting in front of someone and then just being able to come up with whatever your mind tells you. Uh, That's what people think. But actually, it's about bringing them from point A to point B. And salespeople who are process-oriented actually sell about three times as much as those who are more options-oriented or more coming up with things creatively um, because they don't follow the process. Right. And it's a lot of testing, too. It's a lot of um, A-B testing. I know campaigns do this all the time, especially, you know, big presidential elections will go out and and test different messages. So they might take um, a district in Pennsylvania and then they'll take a similar district in North Carolina demographically and another demographically similar district in Ohio or Michigan and use them as controls against each other and basically run sort of a, a, an experiment that way by giving each one a different language and then going back and, and testing on, on how did that actually perform um, in the long run. And then as far as actually like getting people to, to that place, um, that, that's, the, that, that's the challenge. That's the big the big problem to solve is w- once you figured this out, how do you get people on board? And the way that I've always done it is that people will respond to numbers. And if you tell this, you've got a canvasser who is uh, convinced that they need to go out and talk about guns to every person on the door and that that's the winning issue and they just need to constantly talk about guns. If you sit them down in a training and you say, hey, a lot of really brilliant people A-B tested this and here's how we came up with our methodology. Here's this process that we developed for how you walk somebody through this conversation and how you get them to think about things in a different way. And here's all of the scientific backing behind mm-hmm. it. A lot of people respond Creates to that. Buy-in. And a lot of people, exactly, they get buy-in and there's there's a lot of trainings about how to get that buy-in and how to do that social pressure on the volunteer so that they'll buy into your process and then go out and do it. And, and that and, and that that's not a small issue, right? Like anyone who's ever had, right. you know, an employee or to have someone, you know, who's doing something for you, well, you got to know how to actually get them to do the best practice. That's you know, if they don't do it, then it doesn't work. Exactly. And so speaking of buy-in here, one last thing before we go that I wanted to bring up uh, was the neighborhood team model. Um, it's it's really a, a something that was, again, pioneered on the Obama campaign in that what they did is in 2008, they didn't have, you know, a sophisticated operation. And in South Carolina, they managed to have, you know, this upswelling of volunteers who were willing to go out and be advocates and really basically run the entire uh, South Carolina field program and ended up winning them the primary there. And what they did, what bubbled up from that was what was called the neighborhood team model, where they started giving volunteers 
the roles and titles and responsibilities of staff, what had traditionally been staff responsibilities up until then. And it's evolved and morphed and become significantly more structured where everybody has their role that they know that they play on the team. And they have gone to, you know, statewide trainings and, and, and sort of staff-like trainings where they learn all of these processes. They're able to privately air their grievances and complaints and problems and all of that to staff and people who are running the campaign and are able to sort of get that buy-in from those, those random people who walk into the campaign office they get they get elevated to uh, a, a new level of buy-in. And when somebody has a title and has a role, even if it's unpaid and have gone to special yeah. trainings and have had that uh, that experience, they're now bought into it. They now feel a part of responsibility for the program and a level of trust and and um and uh, they have a feeling like they need to now be an advocate. And that becomes a lot more powerful when they're talking to the random stranger who just decided they wanted to walk in the door because they see somebody like themselves leading the thing, leading the canvas, leading the phone bank. It's just this unpaid person who's just motivated um, because, you know, how he or she was inspired by the campaign. And that's just and a, a whole other level of persuasion and social pressure right there. Yeah, it's being able to have them move through the stages of, of group process, you know, which are forming, storming, norming, and performing, and getting them and fast-tracking them more into that, you know, norming and performing type of stage where they're actually being able to do their job um, and to, to move through it, you know, more quickly. All right. I think we're about out of time here. Uh, this was a great discussion Absolutely. and we're going to be talking about a lot of these things going forward. I think that there's so much more here on, on sort of the, the campaign tactics, both internally and externally. Uh, I want to thank you all for listening. Now, if you guys like what you hear, and of course you do, you can go onto our Patreon page and, uh, you know, for as little as buying us a cup of coffee, support us and help pay for our server costs and all the other things that it takes to run a podcast. Now, just think, OK, when are you going to do that? OK, who will you be with when you're going to do that? And what time of day will it be when you actually go scroll down into the show notes? Click that Patreon link. Could be a few seconds from now. And notice how good it feels once you do. That's right. <laughs> it's going to feel great. And of course, also remember to follow us on Twitter, follow us on Facebook. Um, let us know on Twitter your your thoughts, your comments about the show, who you'd like to see on the show and topics that you'd like for us to cover. All right. That's it. Until next time. We'll see you then.